Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Well, our call to confession today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, which is really a warning. A warning to us all. Let me start off reading it. For I do not want you to become unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So Paul reminds us here, to, or tells us we should look back at the record of Exodus, where God's people had escaped from Egypt, the privileged chosen people, and they're falling away. He wants us to learn from it the hard lesson of self-distrust, or don't trust ourselves. Israel was led by divinely appointed leaders, overshadowed by a divine presence, supported by divinely given food and drink. Israel, 600,000 men, not counting the children, had passed from bondage to Egypt, in Egypt into glorious liberty as children of the living God. And yet, many who thought they stood secure in God, in the relationship of God, many fell away. Later in the early church, Paul explains that the Corinthians should have seen their freedom from bondage of sin to a more glorious liberty as a thing of great worth. Um, that's why he says, let, let the one who thinks he stands secure take great heed lest they fall. The Corinthians' murmurings against their apostolic teachers, their longing to get so close to their desires without committing an actual sin, they were fooling themselves. And these were all significant indicators that the Corinthian church, that many in the Corinthian church would fall. Paul is warning us today uh, when we feel like... Um, beginning to dislike those who warn us against sin, when we find, find ourselves measuring with minute precision how close we can get to sinning without sinning, indulging in whatever it is that we want, when we ponder in our brains how close can I get without crossing the line, without falling to sin. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When does dislike for somebody 
disgust in them and their actions, animosity, slander, gossip? When does that become hateful and therefore murder? Matthew 5.28 says, But I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When does a quick glance, a second look, a stare, a thought become lust and therefore adultery? Finally, 1 Peter 1.13 says, um, Therefore, prepare yourselves for action. Be sober-minded. I think about how many ounces does it take before blood alcohol level reaches a point that sober-mindedness is no longer maintained. Paul says, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So this call confession tells us that uh, we do want to pay attention. We want to listen. We want to consider. We want to take heed of our actions that may lead us into sin. Psalm 95.6 says, Oh come, let us worship without ever. sermon text this morning coming to us from the Gospel of John chapter 10. You notice that Jesus spends quite a bit of time in this chapter describing who he is as the Good Shepherd in this morning. I'd like us to focus our attention on only five of those verses, verses 11 to 15. You find uh, this here in the middle of the chapter. John chapter 10 verses 11 to 15. It's our Savior speaking, where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as we go before the throne of grace in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left your church as orphans. Even as our Savior has risen and ascended on high, he continues to govern his church and to shepherd well by his word and his spirit. We pray that your spirit this morning would bless the reading of the scriptures. And not only bless its reading, but also its preaching, that we might be diligent to believe all those things that you have called us to believe in the goodness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. A question for you. What do you think is the most important book that your pastor or your elders should know? Apart from the Bible, of course, I think that is a given. So if we could put it like this, what is the second most important book that they should know apart from the Bible? Of course, uh, in terms of the new year, we, I think, have our own reading schedules and plans. And 
uh, looking at the various types of books we're wanting to read for the new year, you might have a number of books that kind of come to mind and you think, ah, I would really prefer uh, and uh, would like my pastors or elders to display greater theological acumen. So perhaps I'll gift them with a copy of Calvin's Institutes, that of Peter Van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology, or Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology, or even some form of commentary on the Westminster Standards. Perhaps you think, no, what we need is a pastor who is more culturally engaging, and I want to help him become the great apologetic Jedi that he ought to be. And so you end up gifting him with some of those great older works from Augustine or Anselm or Aquinas or perhaps the newer treatments as we learn to defend the faith with greater rigor from Van Til or Bonson. Perhaps you might think what are needed to be known are greater sociological methods and studies. And I think all of these works have their rightful place in the pastor's study. But again, I'd like to redirect the question Apart from the Bible, what ought to be the pastor's chief book that he knows inside and out? Well, I think we are given a window into that question as we consider the office this morning of the under-shepherd. Particularly as we consider the role of the chief shepherd of the Christian's soul. There's two simple considerations I would like us to consider regarding Jesus as the good shepherd. The first is simply this. Jesus is the giving shepherd. You see this here in verses 11 to 13. And then secondly, I'd like us to note and contemplate the goodness of our God, that he is the knowing shepherd. You see that there in verses 14 and 15, that Jesus is the giving shepherd who gives up his own life for the sheep. And he is the knowing shepherd who knows the sheep. And finally, uh, I have a couple of summary reflections as we consider this and, and feed upon the riches of Christ as he gives himself to us in the gospel. But I think first we have to understand a particular immediate and broader context of what's going on here in the gospel of John. In John chapter 7, Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem in the midst of the Feast of Booths. And over the next several chapters, there's a stark contrast that transpires between Jesus as the good shepherd and the present elders, the religious leadership of Israel in Jesus' own day. All throughout the Old Testament, we recognize that the religious leadership have been charged with particular care, a particular thing that they should look out for the spiritual well-being of the people of God. And yet, as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, what do we see happening in the streets? The Pharisees have exposed and humiliated a woman who has been caught in adultery. Furthermore, they've embarked on a witch hunt against a whole family of a man who though born blind, has now been healed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Sabbath. Think about that. Excommunicating a man simply for being healed on the Sabbath. You see that in chapter 9, verses 22, 28, and 34. And all the meanwhile, while the Pharisees continue to run amok with these types of silly little games that they're playing, the demonic hordes have set up shop in Judea, tormenting and devouring the life of the people of God. All throughout the section here in John chapter 10 and even prior to that, we see all these echoes and allusions to the self-indulgent elders and shepherds of Israel that we see in Ezekiel chapter 34. 
See, in the Old Testament, the term the shepherds of Israel is a shorthand term for those who have been entrusted with the spiritual care and nourishment of the people of God. And in Ezekiel 34, as we had read earlier, the Lord himself utters this damning woe. He says, you've been feeding yourselves, you shepherds of Israel, rather than feeding the sheep, you have been feeding upon them, devouring your own. The weak should be strengthened, the sick and the injured should be healed. A good shepherd should seek out the lost, not expose and humiliate them. A good shepherd would bring them back in tender, loving care and compassion. And yet you have done none of these things. Instead, you have left them defenseless and exposed to the predation of wolves. And there is none to save. What glorious news, what glad tidings that we see there in Ezekiel 34 and halfway through. In the midst of such a dark time in the life of the people of God, the Lord himself declares these things. Where he says, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I will feed them with my goodness. Here we're given a picture of the pastor par excellence. If you're familiar with the Reformation, Martin Butzer, the great reforming pastor in Strasbourg, wrote a work on pastoral care uh, that focuses simply as an exposition of Ezekiel 34, 16, where he looks at the different types of sheep that are described in that particular verse and throughout that chapter and sees that as a picture for the various types of sheep one would find in any type of congregation. The lost, the straying, the weak. You have the strong, yes, but not all the sheep in any congregation or in any church are strong. That's only just a part of it. And yet the pastor is called, the shepherd is called to pastor all of the flock and all of their varying needs and the needs are great and the needs are many. And as the Lord himself declares to the prophet and through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord says, I myself will be the good shepherd of the sheep. I myself will cause them, I will force them to lie down and to rest. To lead them into good grazing land and on the rich pastures of the mountains. To lead them beside the still waters. To prepare for them and feed them even in the presence of their enemies. As we heard in Psalm 23. I will seek the lost, the Lord says. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with perfect justice. This he does by establishing David's throne, he says. In a kingdom that is characterized neither by tyranny nor self-indulgence, but a kingdom of justice and mercy. In other words, what we have here is a picture of perfect pastoral care by him who is the perfect, the great shepherd the sheep. And here in a statement of divine identity, the Son of God here declares himself to be the fulfillment of that prophetic promise. Two times Jesus says, and in the Greek it's emphatic, I myself am the good shepherd. Leaving the hearer in no doubt who Jesus is declaring himself to be. It's the word of God incarnate. God in the flesh. Two qualities mark Christ's goodness here as the one who cares for his own. 
The first, of course, is this, that he is the giving shepherd. What is it that the good shepherd does? Well, first thing first, he lays down his life for the sheep, as it has here. The ESV, the KJV, quite literally, he gives up his soul for their sake. It's a declaration of divine love. What is it that Jesus tells his disciples just five chapters later? There is no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus using those same words. He lays down his life for his own, not simply as a bare act of duty, as if he's rolling his eyes. But this act of self-service is one that, uh, that, that overflows from the wellspring of love as the sheep are the object of our Savior's great and deepest affections. Our Savior himself reflecting the very heart of the Father. As Jesus tells Thomas, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There is no hesitancy, there is no act in our Savior's love for the sheep, even those who are straying, even for those who are weak, even for those who are lost. Those who are his are those that he willingly gives up his own life for to save them from destruction. That's what Jesus tells us this morning. Of his own love for his people. What greater love is there than to lay down one's life, to give up one's soul for a friend, or as Paul adds in Romans, for an enemy. For even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ gave up his life that we might live. What a contrast of leadership we're seeing here between Jesus as the good shepherd and the false shepherds of Israel, those hired hands. You see there in verses 12 and 13, Jesus makes the contrast between what distinguishes the hireling from him who is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays it all on the line. When their well-being is of greater value in his eyes than his own life, why? Because they are his. They belong to me, the shepherd says, and they are worth more than my own soul. His very heart esteems them to be more precious than his own life. Thus would he die to deliver them from the mouths of wolves, and thus he does die to deliver us from the mouths of our enemies. Not so with the hired hand, though, who cares more for his own comfort who in fact cares nothing for the sheep. The hireling has taken his post for other reasons, be it for financial gain or prestige or notoriety. And yet when trouble comes, he's nowhere to be found. He abandons his post. He leaves the sheep exposed to the prowling wolf who scatters the sheep and devours them one by one. We find here that the sheep have not just one but two adversaries. Not just the wolf, but the one who is to interpose himself between the wolf and the sheep. Because the hired hand is at present caring for nothing than himself, even feeding and gorging himself upon the sheep. The sheep find themselves with no one to care for them. So Jesus says here that the good shepherd lays it all on the line as one who has promised never to leave us or forsake us who is with us always to the very end of the age. He is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. 
He who neither slumbers nor sleeps, the psalmist says, will keep you from all evil. He will watch over you and keep you from all harm. Notice this, if Ezekiel 34 sits in the background, one of the things that we are led to conclude is Jesus is not simply looking out after those who are able to look out after themselves. That is not the gospel. Jesus isn't simply looking out after the healthy, fit, and strong sheep, those who are fat and happy. He also keeps the tempted. He also preserves the weak. He seeks out those who are caught in the thicket with a broken leg. He binds up the wounds of the injured. He seeks out and rescues the straying and the lost. Isn't that what the parable of the shepherd who seeks out the one lost is all about? Jesus over and over again declares his tender care that not a single one will be lost. For you cannot be snatched from your heavenly father's hand. Because we serve a God who is omnipotent. Christ knows who are his. He will not allow a single one to be lost. So good is he, so great is his goodness, kind in all of his ways and faithful in all of his works. He gives himself freely for he has promised and he keeps his promise in a duty that is born of love. In the very wellspring of his heart such as his care for you. The good shepherd gives himself, but secondly, we find that the good shepherd not only gives himself and lays himself down on the line for the sheep, he also knows the sheep. He is the knowing shepherd. We see this here in verses 14 to 15. So he knows the sheep and they know him. You know, I live back in Florida and back home, I have uh, uh, the happiest dog on the face of this earth, a dog by the name of Gus. He's a little golden doodle. He's about four years old. I remember a few years ago, I had gone elsewhere to preach uh, on the, the Northwest, and my parents were in town uh, when I was living in Chicago, and they were dog-sitting for me so that Gus would not be left by himself. And uh, They decided to live stream the service that particular morning, and Gus had been sleeping at my dad's feet that morning. And uh, as the service began, and I came to the podium, and as to do with the beginning of every service, give those glad tidings of grace and peace that come to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My dog heard my voice on the TV, and he jumps up, and he runs, and he about knocks the TV over, seeing my face. And he doesn't know what to do, because he sees me, but he just sees a picture of me. And so he runs behind the TV, and then he, he runs down the hallway, and he keeps hearing my voice, and he jumps on the couch and looks out the window. And I talked to my parents afterwards, after the service, uh, not knowing that they would be tuning in, and they said, he just went ballistic hearing your voice. He was looking for his master, because he knows the sound of his master's voice. He knows the sound of him who loves him. And that is the picture we have before us. Our Savior is the knowing shepherd. He knows us. I think there are two facets that are brought into focus here in terms of this kind and quality of knowing. First, it is a relational knowledge. A relational knowledge born of mercy. It is mutual. It's intimate. This is not simply the accumulation of factual data about an individual so that you can win some kind of jeopardy match. Rather, this is the kind of knowledge a mother has for the child that she has born into her womb for nine months and raised her entire life. 
You know, the prophet Hosea tells us the kind of knowledge that the Lord delights in. It's Hosea chapter 6. The Lord delights in steadfast love. And the knowledge of God more so than that of sacrifices and burnt offerings. What's he getting at there? You know, one of the problems that the prophets have to, had to confront with the people of God in their day and age is there's so many people who are just go to church, as it were, simply to go through the motions. You know, in Jeremiah's day, it's, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. They, 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 go, they go to the temple, they offer their sacrifices, and they're like, great, now I can live like the devil. I can do whatever it is that I want because I have done my religious duty. And the Lord says, no, I delight in steadfast love more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. See, God is no mere talisman to be used to expiate guilt. He is so much more. He is our chief end. He is our exceedingly great reward. It's the very thing that we confess this morning from the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Augustine writes that evil men make use of God as a means to enjoy the world. But for the people of God, God is our chief end. He himself is our reward. Who do I have in heaven but you? There is no one that I desire on earth besides you. My, my heart, my flesh, it might, might fail. But God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. This is the kind of knowledge that Christ is talking about. People, that the sheep know their shepherd is the one who has laid his life down on the line for them. Jeremiah himself writes this, saying, Behold, the days are coming that every man will not teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's why the great Puritan John Flavel says this, that the forgiveness of sins is the Christian's chief happiness. That we have a Savior who has laid down his life that we might live and enjoy fellowship and communion with him. This is eternal life, our Savior says in John 17, that they might know you, the one true God, and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. It is a knowing, it is knowing the Good Shepherd who has given up his soul for them, for you, is what we are being called and drawn to as our Savior feeds us, even in the meal this morning that we're about to partake in. He feeds us with his own body and blood. This is my body given for you. Feast upon it. How intimate. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. Come, let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will shower us with the rains, like those latter rains that fall upon the earth. As Ezekiel says, for there will be showers of blessing. The rains of the Spirit who brings those great times of refreshing that were promised from of old. Not only is this a relational knowledge of Christ knowing us, And of us knowing our Savior, it is an inexhaustible knowledge. I've talked on the one hand about our knowing our Savior and coming to know him in that full, intimate way. But we do that because he already knows us. Notice here in verse 15, the analogy that our Savior gives here. I know my sheep. What's the analogy? What's the comparison? Just as the Father knows me. 
just as I know the Father, so do I know the sheep. I might ask you this, how well does the Father know the Son? Is it simply superficially, kind of on a handshake basis? You might say pretty good. No, the Father knows the Son inexhaustibly. For the Father and the Son are one God, two distinct persons. The third, of course, being the Spirit. But we, as we confess, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. This is the very point of the Trinitarian debates of the 4th and 5th centuries. That when Jesus comes, he doesn't simply reflect most of the heart of the Father, leaving us with a, a little bit of shred of doubt as to God really loves us. But rather, all that Christ does for us in our salvation reflects the same heart of the Father who sent the Son to die for us and be raised again, be seated at his right hand, the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son fully knows the Father, for he is the very heart. He is the very word of the Father. Not simply of similar substance, but of the same identical substance. You see, God does not learn discursively as man does. You think, oh, I don't know anything about the American Revolution. I need to read a book on that. And you come to know new things about the American Revolution. God doesn't have to do that. He knows all things fully comprehensively. He does not come to acquire new knowledge. Applying this pastorally, there is nothing about you that God doesn't already know. And if we didn't know, as the scriptures tell us, that God is love, that would frighten us, would it not? How often do we hide our sins from God thinking, how would he, how would he ever receive me? What if he knows? The reality is God already does know. In all of your sin and in all of your frailty, in all of our weakness, in all of our misery, and still he comes eagerly to our aid as the good shepherd who seeks out the lost. As the good and kind shepherd, even as he did with the woman caught in adultery. Even as he did with the man born blind from birth. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, you herald of glad tidings, the Lord says to Isaiah. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, you herald of good news. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. For the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him. What does Isaiah then say? Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. This is in Isaiah chapter 40 on the heels of about 20 chapters worth of judgment oracles. With Israel being left scattered to the nations, exiled because of her own sin and treachery. Now the Lord says, behold, your shepherd comes with his reward. He will come and he will save you. Even from your own sin and misery. Not simply from... Uh, the, the sin that others have wrought against you, true as that is, but he comes to deliver you from yourself. 
And from the iniquities that you yourself, the treachery you yourself, that I, that I myself have committed against my creator. So great is the father's love for us. He sends his son who like a shepherd will tend his flock. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Thus says the Lord. All of those sheep who are his, the strong, the tempted, the weak, the straying, the lost. Here we find this portion of our Savior's discourse bookended by those very glad tidings. Notice how this particular section begins and ends. Twice Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives up his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows the sheep. But notice how it begins in verse 11 and how it ends. What is it that the good shepherd does? The good shepherd, twice Jesus says, it's our bookends of happiness. He lays down his life for those who are his. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and I myself, Jesus says, on several occasions here, I am the good shepherd, and I am laying myself all on the line. I'm giving up my soul for you. As one who has come to seek the lost and the strayed, to bring them back into the fold and into his loving arms. For those of you who have been injured, who have mistaken his discipline for his wrath, for those who hold deep-seated mistrust on account of wolves and hirelings, know this, that the good shepherd comes in his redeeming love to set those bones that have been broken as he comes with healing in his wings. Here is a shepherd far greater than you can ever imagine. And the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are weak and are afflicted by a conscience that has been wounded by your own past sins. And you're thinking, will God ever accept me? Will God ever receive me? And you ask yourself, what if, what if I have strayed too far this time? What if he discovers my past sins? Will he still take me in? Beloved, he already knows fully and exhaustively. Every sin every treachery, all of our iniquity, and he still beckons with these words, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. We have a shepherd far greater than we can ever imagine who gave up his soul as an offering for sin to deliver us from the predatory tyranny of sin and death and from Satan himself, who knows us and loves us even still, who defends and protects us, who feeds us and nourishes us, who has sought us out even while we were still enemies, who has come to set those broken limbs who heals us of all of our sickness and sores and leads us in the way of life everlasting, who having ascended now to heaven has not abandoned his sheep, who has not left us even this day as orphans. For when Christ ascended on high, he gave good gifts to men, Paul writes, shepherds and teachers as instruments of his defense for us against the hirelings and the wolves. Paul, as he, having spent three years in Ephesus, is about to leave, and he gives a charge to the elders, saying this, know this, wolves will come in after you, so take a look 
out for yourself and your character and conduct and out for the lives of the sheep. And so what we find here is that the good shepherd, because he has ascended on high and given these good gifts to men, shepherds, pastors, teachers, elders, as instruments of the defense of his flock in and under the new covenant, we find that the good shepherd is in fact the model shepherd for all of his under shepherds. The good shepherd is the model shepherd for all of his under shepherds. Peter, writing to the church, says this, that I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, not with a rolling of the eyes, as it were, but willingly, not for shameful gain as the false shepherd of Israel in Ezekiel, but eagerly, not domineering, embarking on these witch hunts to expose and humiliate sinners, but seeking their restoration and repentance and being as examples to the flock under the oversight of the chief shepherd. How striking it is how the Gospel of John ends, isn't it? You think of the other Gospels that end either with the resurrection or the Great Commission or the Ascension. Not so with John's Gospel. It ends with Jesus coming to restore Peter. Peter, who had denied Christ three times, who thought, I, I thought I had it all together. I was part of Christ's inner circle. He had denied Christ three times, thinking that he was no different than Judas, weeping bitterly the night of his betrayal. And yet Jesus comes to him in mercy, says, hey, you have anything to eat? By the way, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Well, I suggest to you that the Gospel of John is not simply the Gospel for the new Christian. It's the pastor's Gospel. Seeking to restore the lost, regardless of your position or lot in life, whether you are the least in the congregation or the greatest. Jesus knows who are his. He knows what is needed, and he comes with tender arms of mercy and compassion. It brings us back to that initial question that I had asked. What do you think should be the, past, the pastor's most important book that he should know apart from the Bible? My, I suggested this, that it is the church membership directory. There's no greater duty and no greater privilege that a pastor or an elder has than caring for the flock of Christ. This is not something, some, simply something to add to a resume. This is a charge that these men have had been given as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as gifts of Christ to you. It's a charge we must take seriously. Just as Christ laid down his life for the sheep willingly and lovingly, so ought the elders and the pastors give up their lives for the sake of his precious flock, no matter how great or small, no matter how troubled that congregation is. Because it is Christ's flock, and he has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Just as Christ knows his sheep fully and exhaustively, so ought the elders and pastors of a congregation know the sheep and seek to learn every member of the congregation and all of their strengths and all of their frailties and all of their temptations and all of their sin and all of their strengths and in all of their gifts and graces. And come to their aid and defense to feed them in perfect justice 
and mercy. But secondly, there is a charge, I think, to the congregation as well. To recognize your pastors and elders for who they are. As Christ's special gift for the church, as Christ knows exactly what you need in this day, in this hour. And he's given these gifts to you for your spiritual nourishment and well-being. To aid you in a life of holiness and to protect you from all harm. That's why Paul writes to the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, to a church that's highly distrustful of their pastor. He says, open your hearts to us. We've done nothing wrong or underhanded. Open your hearts to us. For you are our letter of love, written by the Holy Spirit himself. For you have a Savior who will lead you beside still waters, who will feed you in justice, where the only thing that there shall be ever to overtake you are goodness and mercy all the days of your life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given to your people. We pray that you would feed us with your word as our eyes are lifted to heaven by your Spirit's power, that we might see Christ and all of his goodness and beauty to us as the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. As we struggle and wrestle with doubt, and are plagued by past sins, we pray that your mercy, free and abundant, found solely in Christ, who gave up his life for us, would be a, made real more so to us as we hear your word of promise, and as we taste and see that you are in fact good in the giving of the bread of the wine. Seal our hearts by the work of your spirit and strengthen our faith that we might seek to love you all of our days as we make our way to that celestial city, that kingdom with unshakable foundations, as we await to see our faithful shepherd face to face. We ask these things in Christ's name, praying as you have taught us. Come to the Lord's table this morning. I'd like to read from John 4. Verses 11 through 14. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are called to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. Like the woman at the well, we look around and we question the depth of the well. We see our problems before us and we question whether God can provide for us. We don't see his means, and so we doubt all that he can do for us. As we commune with Christ today in this meal, we rejoice that he has opened our eyes, that we no longer rest in blindness, relying on our own strength to see. The truth of our communion with Christ is that he has come to each one of us and has given us water that not only quenches our thirst, but wells up within us unto eternal life. Let us eat and drink then this morning, rejoicing in this great wellspring that flows 
from our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us. You are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.